The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 80 of The Things We All Carry. Dostoevsky wrote, you will burn and you will burn out. You'll be healed and come back again. Those words resonate with me. In some manner, small or large, we burn every day. Day-to-day life alone burns us. And then we add traumas, work schedules, irregular sleep, poor diet, and numerous other stressors. Now, I'm not sure if burnout is inevitable. However, in the first responder world, it's hardly rare. The second part of that message is vital, though. You will be healed and come back again. That healing starts once there's a recognition and an acceptance of burnout. If you notice some signs and symptoms of burnout, it's paramount to seek out help, talk to someone, dig into the why, build a recovery, and then come back again. Chad Davis is the author of Burnt Out, a paramedic's memoir. This book is his story, his journey, his experience. Chad is a firefighter, a medic, an author, a husband, and a father. He has lived through a number of life-altering traumas and has come through the other side. He speaks about life in the station, the significant cause, the traumas, the death of his infant son, the fight to find himself, and life after all of it. In other words, Chad has been burned, he's been burnt out, he's healed, and he's come back again. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. see if we can go you know an hour hour and a half and and see where he ends up i have a feeling we won't have any trouble covering that time okay all right welcome back to the things we all carry and i want to thank chad for being with me chad is I, he's finding his way to me from florida this morning on vacation so i'm a little jealous he's he's watching the ocean and i'm just watching my apartment and him on the screen but uh he lives in new york correct chad correct and uh I'm going to let him explain how he got to where he is today. Uh, just let you know that he is where he was a firefighter, paramedic, turned author, and he's still in the business with, as a paramedic right now. So I, I will let him kind of explain where he grew up and uh, where, where he went from there. Good morning, Chad. Good morning. I appreciate the invite and uh, um, looking forward to talking with you. My background, I started as a volunteer in 2004. Um, I had a girlfriend that her dad was a firefighter and, uh, he had a bunch of melted helmets on his wall and has a story behind every one. So I decided, uh, to check it out. He, he wanted me to come. He worked for Virginia beach. He, um, invited me to come. We ended up breaking up, but I kind of got bit by that bug and, uh, joined the volunteer fire department in Currituck, North Carolina. And I did that for a couple of years while I got my EMT and. Uh, ended up working for the Portsmouth Fire Department for nine years. Um, and then some life circumstances, which I assume we'll cover as oh, we yeah. go along, dictated that we, uh, dictated that I moved careers and I, I moved to the Isle of Wight Fire Department, which is more rural, Isle of Wight County Emergency Services in Virginia. And it was a more rural atmosphere. 
Uh, and then my wife finished her doctorate and got a job as uh, a professor at Indiana University. And so we moved to Indiana and I was there for a few years and then COVID happened and I got uh, pretty burnt out along the way and had to make some changes. So uh, as of now, I am working for Bennington Rescue Squad in Vermont and doing things there. That's a completely different atmosphere than what they kind of what you came up with, with, you know, being in Portsmouth and, you know, kind of scratch, not scratch, but kind of skip over the the rural department you were in, in Virginia. And then you get to Indiana. I know that you, you ran a, you ran a ton in, in those two places and then you get to Vermont and, and I, I have to imagine that it's kind of, I don't know if it's a polar opposite, but it's got to be a, a calmer atmosphere. Uh, I don't know if it's calmer. It's, it's a different atmosphere. Um, it's different problems, but it's the same problems. You know, we still, we still deal with, um, the narcotics and substance abuse and that everywhere else is dealing with. I think we deal with it on a little bit larger level, um, because there's not a lot to do there and not a lot of jobs, not a lot of housing, but, um, you know, all of those demographic items that dictate that people do drugs, they're all, they're all present there. So. We run a lot. It's just different problems. So before we get too far into it, I'm going to make sure that I ask the question that I want to ask at the beginning with people. And I kind of, uh, I, I'm always interested to see what people are listening to. So what was the last song that you heard? Oh, um, it's probably something by Morgan Wallen. It's, okay. It's All probably right. from my wife too. I listen to a lot of audiobooks when I'm alone. So it's, <laughs> that makes sense. I have yet to get into audiobooks, so I need to try some for myself. I have a bunch of credits on Audible, and I I, I keep warning me that they're going to expire. So I had to I, I need to use them. And start doing that on my commutes, I suppose. Yeah. All right. So you start in Portsmouth, and you start because you had a girlfriend whose whose dad had these helmets. And I know that I read the book, and let me show people the book. Let me see if it'll work like that. So there's your book. And I know in the book that, that you broke up with her before you even started with the fire department. So it was, a, it, it, it kind of, I don't know if backfired is the word, but it circumstances changed and you started as a volunteer in after breaking up with her. Correct. Right. Right. Um, I was kind of already on that path anyway. Okay. Um, I just stuck it out and I didn't go to Virginia beach, obviously. So that's what I was going to ask you. Why the fire service? Why did you choose it? Other than, other than seeing those helmets, was what was it about it that just made you decide to continue on? Uh, I was a high schooler, and I was searching. Uh, there was a lot of different things that I wanted to do along the way. I wanted to be a youth pastor, or a graphic designer, an architect. But, you know, I, I just really hadn't found my path yet. And I was 17 years old and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Um, and then somebody presented an option to me that, that didn't require me to go to college. And... Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, it, and it was just fun. I, I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the job. I, I got bit by the EMS bug early on. Um, and I, I couldn't have imagined doing anything else with my life at the time. So I, I had to, I had to go down that path. And then ultimately I still ended up in college, but, um, you know, I, I needed the time to feel my way to that. So how does that work for you? How do you, how do you start that process? How do you get into the, to the fire service? For me, it started with going to my high school guidance counselor who recommended that I go to the, the volunteer fire department and, um, just kind of explore that, that with them. So I 
that's what I did. I went to the volunteer fire department. I got voted in. I started taking classes. Um, and for me, the fire service wasn't attainable at the time because in that post 2001 period, 2004 to 2007, after 9-11, it was a really desirable job and I had to figure out what my path was. I'm not the the biggest specimen. I'm not going to uh, be able to drag the 300 pound, 300 pound man out of the building. So I had to, had to figure out what my path was and that was to go to EM, EMT school and then ultimately paramedic school. And so you say you got bit by the EMS bug. What, what do you think? Of, what was it about EMS that got you going like that early? Um, it was, I've got a mechanical mind. And so I, I was able to combine that. And I'm also an artist. So it, but there's nothing, the body is scientific, but it's also not, it's, it's both science and art, um, and figuring out which variables to plug in to make the, th make it do the things that you want it to do. And it was just more interesting to me than the fire side. I always liked the fire side, but I always liked the MS more. So when do you get, when do you become a paramedic? Um, I went through stages. I, I Virginia at the time had an, e, an EMT enhanced. I was an EMT when I went into the fire academy in 2007. I got my EMT enhanced during the fire academy and then my EMT intermediate. Uh, I want to say it was 2009 or 2010 and then paramedic shortly after that. All right. So let's talk about the academy because I think there was a couple of experiences you had in the academy which were kind of interesting. And, and, uh, you mentioned that you mentioned your stature a little bit there. You needed to find a different way in. So you used a paramedic. And one of the reasons was you said your, your size and, right. uh, they, I mean, you, you showed up to day one of recruit school and, and you've got your, uh, you, you've got, uh, what do you have a shirt on that says what are they in a medic class or something like that? Right. I worked for a company called medical transport. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 I had their, I had their jacket on for recruit school and, um, they didn't like that at all. So, <laughs> so you kind of get nervous. They ask you what your name is and, and, uh, and what do you end up with for a, for a name in recruit school? Um, there was a couple different ones. There was baby Davis. Um, and I know in the book you, you mentioned recruit tiny or something like that. Yeah, yeah, recruit tiny is what the instructor called me. Then, yeah, Peter called me Baby Davis. So. <laughs> I, both of them are pretty good, pretty good nicknames. I mean, obviously you you, you want to beat them, but it's, they're pretty right. funny. So, yeah. how, how does recruit school commence for you? I mean, what do you find? Do you do you enjoy it? Is it something that you took to pretty pretty much right away, or what? I didn't expect to. Um, it was not something that I took to right away, but I got into the routine, and the routine was what really started driving me. Um, and I don't, I, I like the aspect of competing against myself, but I also like the aspect of competing against others. And mm -hmm. so it allowed me to do both of those things and really start to excel. And I just, um, I really started to make a name for myself. I it just wasn't, you know, being small, I always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, um, from being a kid. And so. I, I did not want to be the one that couldn't keep up. And so when I started to excel and I wasn't the one that couldn't keep up and people were having trouble keeping up with me, that's when, when I really started to feel like this is for me. Yeah. That's a, that's a great change. And it, it's such a confidence boost, right? Right. Right. 
Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, and I think because it, it illustrates some of the things that we all go through in recruit school, and, and there's a different version of it for everybody, but is, is, and I had to laugh when I got to the part in the book was this whole aspect of recruit dong. Right. And right. you want to explain what that was and kind of what the purpose is behind recruit dong for, for, and I know some people are out there going, what the hell is he talking about? But I think they'll get the point when you start talking about it. Yeah. So recruit dong originates from Bud's Navy SEAL training. Um, and it's just a bell that you carry around. We called him recruit dong. He was our 21st recruit, um, had to be, he had to keep it silent at all times. And the reason why was because a, that it signifies that uh, when it rings, it signifies that a firefighter has died. And we did this every morning. We would read off the the people that uh, had died mm -hmm. throughout the week in the line of duty um, and and ring it once for each person that had passed on. Um, and the other was to signify that you quit. And And so either of those two things, if that bell rings, it means that somebody's career or their life has ended. And so it was sacred to us. We had to, the, the instructors would try to ring it. And if it rung, then we were all punished severely. And mm -hmm. uh, that involved whatever torturous exercise that they could do, inflict uh, upon us. Um, but it, it garnered a healthy respect for what we were going into and the gravity of what we were doing. Yeah, you're learning already to, to take care of something and someone. Right. Right. And, and that, that, that bell was almost more important than you. Absolutely. It went everywhere with us and we held, held the clapper in our hands so that it wouldn't ring. And, um, yeah, we just, did, did anybody ring that during recruit school? It, it only happened once accidentally. Okay. And then the instructors coming in, they would, they would try to ring it as they walked in and occasionally they would be successful. But nobody rang it to, to, to ring out. Uh, we, I believe we lost two during recruit school. All right. And, and, you know, I, it's, I'm a, I'm a little slow because I forgot, you know, I'm thinking Portsmouth and then I'm thinking now it makes sense because of buds with the proximity to the Naval base there. Now it really does make, it comes in right. a little more focus there. So, you know, I'm a little slow. I worked last night, so I'm coming off the end of a tour. <laughs> um, so when do you graduate from the fire academy? Uh, it was late 2007, September, 2007. Okay. How was your rookie year? It was interesting. I thought, you know, we heard a lot of stories in the fire academy of, of the rookies getting hazed and pranked. And, um, I went to a station with a captain that would have none of that, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I was called always looking over my shoulder and expecting the other shoe to drop and just waiting for that, that to come. And so, um, I got a little bit preemptive with it and went after my lieutenant and <laughs> uh, he knowing the rules did not like it very much um but i'd opened the gate and so mm -hmm. he uh turned the tables on me and it, it was just a back and forth thing we we started it just kept accelerating but <laughs> we started off with silly string and ended up with somebody uh with him with me cutting the telephone pole in the back of the station down <laughs> the, the, the silly string was funny because I, I, I think every rookie has been in that position that you were, whether it's silly string or water or whatever it was. And, and you've got one guy saying, Hey, let's do this. And you're in the back of the, that engine going, I don't know if I'm going to do this. And if I do it, is he going to do it? And am I the only one? And so it's that you think 
am I getting pranked by him or is this actually me, right. he and I pranking the Lieutenant? And so it's, it's funny cause you can actually kind of feel that decision coming on for you. Right. So, um, the, in the book and I keep referencing the book, but that's, I mean, that's why, that's how I found you. I saw you, I saw you post about your book and I said, and I thought, well, I had to reach out to you and discuss it a little bit. Um, you mentioned that your first fire was the stuff that movies are made of. Right. So how, why, why do you say that? It, it's just not a fire that I've encountered in any other time in my career. It wiped out an entire city block. Um, it was December of 2007, I believe. Um, and you know, we got woken up in the middle of the night for a fire downtown and we got on the interstate. It's, it's probably six miles from where the fire was on the interstate. And we could see the flames from when we first got on the interstate. Um, it was a church downtown that was on fire. And when we pulled up, we got parked on one side, on the opposite side of the block from where the fire was told to raise the ladder. Um, we initially pulled in right next to that building and my lieutenant said, no, no, we're going to, we're going to back up and park across the street, which seemed kind of absurd at the time. Um, because we were so far away from the fire. So we raised the ladder up. I went up, I moved the, the nozzle around, came back down. He said, no, get back up there. Your job is to move that nozzle around and get it on the fire. So I did, I got it on the fire. And then I came back down he was like, what are you still doing down here? Um, so he went up himself and I'm standing on the turntable and all of a sudden we just heard this like low rumble and along the side of that building, every wall, every window in that wall blew out in succession. He said the roof lifted up and sat back down and then all of a sudden the wall just blew out and, uh, they. Ended up, they, they described it as a smoke explosion mm -hmm. and I, I had to look it up. They wrote articles about it afterwards because it's such a rare phenomenon. Um, there was never any fire in that building. What ended up happening is the gases from the church got, uh, seeped into that building and the upper floors got so superheated that whenever they decided to go in to check for extension, the air hit it. And it ended up blowing itself out. There was never any fire associated, but the pressure and the, the rapid expansion of heat and gases and oxygen and all of it, it just, it just blew the, the whole building up. Um, it, and that was my introduction into the fire service. <laughs> so it's it a, was, it's a hell of an introduction that most people would thankfully don't have to experience. Right. Were, were any of the guys on the guys and gals on the, on the fire ground injured or, or did everyone walk away from that? Okay. We had three guys that were, that were, they were, they were the ones that opened the door and introduced the oxygen. They were going in to check for extension. They right. were masking it. If they had gone in, they would have been killed. Um, fortunately they didn't. And the wall happened to just fall straight over top of them. Um, so they, they fell were through the doorway. Right. Jeez they, Christ. they were standing in a three foot section of wall, up, um, a three, three, a cleared three foot section that the wall just happened to not fall on. And the only injury was a shoulder injury from where the brick had hit the guy, one of the guys in the shoulder. That's amazing in itself. Yeah. Yeah. We were really fortunate that day. And you, so your first fire was that, and you talk about first, you have, you had a bunch of kind of, not a bunch, you had a number of remarkable firsts. Right. So you, you, you get turned over as a medic 
eventually down the road. And how's your first shift as a medic? Um, well, it started off with your standard sick person call. And then my second call of the night was while I was sitting at the hospital. And, um, one of the things that I struggled with writing the book was maintaining HIPAA. So gotcha. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's, uh, I, I don't know how much I can really say in this format, but I, I got sent to a, a car accident that I wasn't paying attention to at all because most 95% of car accidents are fender benders and you show up and nobody needs you and you're taking somebody to the hospital for neck or back pain. Um, when I pulled up on this one, I looked up and there was a, a body in the street. Um, I, my patient was the driver of that vehicle. And I looked over and there was a car wrapped around a tree, um, which I didn't talk about in the book, but one of the, one of the rough things about that call was that our fuel, our, our city garage and our fuel depot was situated right next to the city impound lot. And so every day we would drive by that city impound lot and see that car that had been wrapped around that tree. And it was a, a constant reminder. Um, but inside that vehicle, there was a, another dead person. And so there were, there were two fatalities on that scene. The third person was my patient. He was the driver. Um, he was dazed. He was severely injured. Um, but you would not have known it from walking up to him. And so as I palpated down his back, it was dark and my hand felt warm and wet. And I looked at it and it was covered in blood. And so I looked back and he just had the, he had an abulse flap of skin all the way down his back. And I was literally touching his spine as I palpated and he didn't notice. So. Yeah. It's not uh, a good thing that he doesn't notice Jesus. Right. Yeah. So those are remarkable calls first. Right. I mean, let's, you might as well call that a first as a medic. Your first shift as a medic is a, a remarkable call. Um, yeah. How do you deal with those, those kind of calls right off the bat? Cause you, I mean, you're, you're a young guy at the time when you, when you join. Um, I don't know that I was really bothered by anything right off the bat. You know, I say when you're young, you have a sense of immortality. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, it's not something that I really thought a lot about at the time. Now, years later, I think about those kids a lot. Um, but you know, I just kind of, you make an assumption, okay, this is the way things are. I've got to be really mindful of, you know, when, when their building could explode. It, it was, it was something that probably saved my life a little bit later whenever I got caught in a rollover. Um, just keeping, keeping in mind, this is a dangerous job and you've got to really take it for what it is and not take, take things for granted. Dude, the title of your book obviously says it all burnt out. So you, right. you, you start talking about the reasons why and, and the statistics about burnout for first responders and pretty much medics it, in, but it's, 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 let's say what it is. It's first responders right now. It's, it's cops, it's fire, it's medics, it's, it's nurses. It's, it's anybody dealing in this industry. Um, right. what did you find when you were researching the book about burnout for, for this population? Well, um, on average, 
paramedics last seven years and before they either move on or um burn out they have to find a new path the the divorce statistics i i don't have it in front of me and i don't remember right from the book typically but they the divorce statistics are high and at one point i i can only talk about my anecdotal uh situation there were 10 guys in a fire station and all of them were divorced at one point or another um and, and i think that comes from you know burnout comes with a series of uh symptoms that really manifest towards other people and in my case it was anger it was um irritability it was sleeplessness it was not wanting to participate in events it, it, it was just a lot that went with it that i didn't recognize at the time but now do um yeah you i know we're going to get to some personal stuff as well but what on the job do you think do you think it's that cumulative effect or do you think there was a couple of calls you went those are the ones i can point to at least job wise i, I don't think it's the calls or not not the bad ones at least it's it's the constant grind of day in and day out i there's one person that i went to 140 times in a month jesus christ uh, so it's it's that that really causes it starts to, when you don't feel like you're making a difference anymore that's when I felt like burnout really started to set in for me. I know you've had, you had a couple of ridiculous calls like that, you know, that you've talked about. And I'm, I'm sure there's ad nauseum amount of them after that. Uh, I can, I can relate my own story. I mean, I, I got called one day to, to a home and, and it was, they asked us to open a soda. Yes. Yeah. It's that kind of call. Is that, that's the one you're referencing. Yeah. To pick up the remote control log that they dropped on the floor or to get them a glass of water, which, you know, there, there are those people that they just don't have anybody to come help them. You don't mind helping occasionally, but I don't want to go pick you up off the floor every three hours. Um, at that point, it's time to find a different solution rather than the fire department. Yeah. We have different people around my County who you can set your watch to when they're going to call because they're going to call you to come put them in a car. And then a few hours later, you're going to be back to put them out of the car. So, and then, yeah. and people listening who work in, in, in my municipality will know exactly the, the ones we're talking about, but right. it, it is, it's frustrating because you, you go to work or you go into a career like this prepared to, 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 for lack of a better word, do good. Right. And it's hard to see the good sometimes when you're doing this stuff repetitively like that. Absolutely. And so when you're doing like I said, I, I went to one person 140 times a month, you do this. 24 hours a day, every third day, and you do it sleepless. The sleeplessness was a big part of it for me. Um, always being tired, always thinking about going back to work. That, that 2448 schedule is killer. Um, that was one thing that I did like about Portsmouth was we had, we had a three on four off schedule. Okay. So it was a grind during that, that three day period but that four-day break was nice every nine days or whatever it was right so. yeah and that's so you wait you had this i think they had the same schedule as we do day on day off day on day off day on four off right yeah that's what i'm doing right now it, it is a grind especially if you get your ass kicked on the on day one of that tour so um 
you, so we talk about cumulative effect of, of the small shit in the fire service or medical or whatever it is. And it starts to build, it starts to build, it starts to build. Were you, were you talking to anybody during that, those times or did you, or was that just not a thing for you? It wasn't a thing. And it's, I mean, it, even now it still isn't a thing. I, I don't talk to a therapist even now. Uh, I have, but I, I didn't feel that it was particularly helpful. It did help me get to the point where I was writing, which is what I feel like helps. Um, but no, I wasn't talking, I wasn't talking to a therapist. I really, uh, other than complaining, I wasn't talking to my peers. Um, and I definitely was, wasn't talking to my leadership because in the times that I did, nobody cared. So it was just a fruitless endeavor. <laughs> that That's a big statement right there. Talking to your leadership because nobody cared. And, and I know that, and again, I can only speak for myself. I know that there are a few chiefs or, or captains or whatever in the, in, in my department that do truly care. But then there's a bunch that just still have that old school mentality of no, it's, this is just, just do your job. Yeah. I think it's getting better. And, and I think it's people like you and me that are going out here and talking about this stuff and that have, have lived it. Um, I, I know that with the, the older generation, there's a lot that have lived this, but they haven't talked about it. And so whenever you got new guys coming in talking from, two years about burnout, they don't, they don't want to hear it. They, when you get to 35 years, then we'll talk. Yeah. Right. So. When you, when you do what I've done, but the, the difference there though, is, is their career hasn't been as heavily loaded with some of these calls. The call volume is, has exploded for, for many departments yes. you know, based on exactly what we just said, all hazards and all hazards to include, I need a drink of water. Well, that's very fucking frustrating at two thirty in the morning. Yeah. So, and, and I still have compassion for the people, but there has to be a solution for the, for that. So that, I think that's the difference because their thinking is, is, is a little bit of a, a little bit out of date because they're not, they didn't experience that, that volume that we, that many departments have seen an increase of. Yeah. So and I'm, I'm seeing, the people that work for me now coming to me and be like, listen, this bothered me. And I love that. Yeah. I, it's, I think we've created an atmosphere where people are comfortable talking about it. Um, talk is the first step. I want to see us become more proactive about things. Um, because talk is supposed to get us to action steps and that that's really the platform that I'm trying to build is what do we do going forward to make sure that this doesn't happen and get people to a point where they are, it's not just talk anymore. We're not just complaining about the fact that there's no, no resources available or, um, nobody to listen, nobody to care. So you have a, you have a chapter in a book called good days. Yes. And it kind of the way, the takeaway that I took from that chapter was the, the, the way that you kind of deal with stuff. There, there are good days that you find some, some humor in even the, the shitty days to be very actually very literal because there's a story in there about about a woman who who needed to be cleaned up let's put it that way um yeah but i think i think one of the things is you got humor versus the dark humor for 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 us in in the service um and you just have those moments where you go okay no that was a call that was that that one is why we we, we do what we do and that's right. kind of the takeaway I, I took from good days but i i do love the story about the the woman who needed help because i mean it showed it showed leadership from your captain yeah, in a, in a very real way, because nobody wants to do what, what he stepped up to say he would do. 
Right. And, and I, I, you want to set the stage for what that story is? Sure. So this was a semi-frequent flyer. So kind of what we were talking about before she, she did not abuse the system in the way that a lot of people do. She was a larger woman. She needed help. She needed help moving. She relied on the fire department for that. And so we, we probably went out there, I don't know, one time every couple of weeks to help her do what she needed to do. But on this occasion, she had gotten out of the shower and fallen on the floor and was just stuck there. And so out of pride, she just would not call 911 until her husband finally got fed up with it and called 911 for her. And when we got there, she was laying naked on the floor and covered in feces. Um, and she just wanted help up. She didn't want anything else. She just wanted help up. And so we were like, okay, we'll take you to the hospital because we aren't going to clean this up. Um, and she was like, I'm not going to the hospital. And so we started thinking, I'm like, what are we going to do here? She, we, we can't just leave her sitting in her own feces. Right. Uh, and so we really tried to convince her, but she wasn't having it. So we went out and she's like, well, I'll get my husband to clean me up. And so we went out and we talked to him and he said, I'm not cleaning her up. I'll throw up. So, um, of the two of them, I would say that he was probably the more worthless one. So we went back in and, and my captain said, listen, you guys don't have to help, but I'm going to clean her up go give me all the towels off the medic and we'll, we'll do it. And so me and my. My best friend, who's actually on vacation with me right now, uh, we we went back in. We brought her the towels. We went out on the front porch, and we were just sitting there, and we, you know, we we were quiet and looking out and thinking, man, I'm not I'm not cleaning her up. I, you know, we we really had this wrestle with this argument there. So I'm not cleaning her up. I'm not doing it. But then we started thinking, we can't let the captain do this. Like if he's going to do it, we've got to do it. And so we, at the same time, we looked at each other and said, you know. We can't let the captain do that. <laughs> then we kind of laughed at ourselves. Like, why would we ever think that we were going to do that? So we went back in, said, Cap, we got it. He handed us the towel, said, thanks. I thought I was going to have to do it and walk back out. Um, so I got into it a little bit and I started, I started, I started cleaning her up and, uh, the outer layers were mm. not as rank as the inner layers yeah. and started exposing stuff. I started getting nauseous and queasy and ran outside of the front porch and threw up and my, my cat said, looked at the husband and said, he'll throw up too, but like, he just kind of called him out right there on his stuff. So <laughs> I, I, I just like that because it's a great way of, of he, he, he said in his mind, he knew there was a job that needed to be done. You guys, nobody's crazy. Nobody wants to go in there and go, yeah, let me, let me wipe up shit. Nobody wants to do that. And, and right. for, for him, for him from a leadership position was exactly the right way to do it. Okay. Well, it, it falls to me then instead of saying, no, you're the rookie or you're the, you're the bucket guy, you go do it. And mm -hmm. I mean, we all know that the resentment that comes from that. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it's, I like that in the sense, I like that as a story is, okay, this is, this is kind of one of those ways to lead you lead from the front like that. Yeah. He, he was by far the best leader not just in the fire service, but anywhere that I've ever encountered. So tell me about the story of, uh, is he gone? Yeah. Um, we, we were dispatched to a, a gang. Uh, it was, it was a mass shooting. Essentially there was, um, I, I don't even remember how many people were shot, but 
we basically said a, like a mound of people, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was in my little section. There, there were others around that other people were tending to, but I got the EMS supervisor said, go, go sort out those people laying under that tree over there. Um, and I did, I started picking, got this guy, picked this guy up and he's dead. So I set him to the side, pick another one up, set him to the side. He's dead. I get about four down and everybody's been dead so far. So I walk over to get the last guy. And I picked him up by the shirt collar to move him over with everybody else. And he grabbed my arms and said, is he gone? And <laughs> that'll scare the shit out of you. Yeah. He was the first person that had been shot and he got shot through the cheek because he, he saw the guy coming and he turned his cheek, uh, and, and the guy shot into his head and went through and through mm -hmm. into his cheeks, passed relatively unharmed. And he just fell on the, on the ground and pretended to be dead while his buddies fell on top of him. Um, and then. That guy walked away and he just waited and for, until somebody came along and found him. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of that whole humor part. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, but it's not funny. The guy still got shot. He still had to move dead bodies to get to this guy who was shot first, but it's still pretty funny. I mean, right. that, that whole reaction. And, and I can only imagine what your reaction was to him. Yeah. I fell on the ground, fell backwards and was like, what the hell? Yeah, <laughs> of course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> so. You spent how long in, in Portsmouth? Uh, I was in Portsmouth for nine years. Okay. And 2007 to 2015. And the most right. significant thing that happened to you while you were in Portsmouth was your son, correct? Yeah. Um, I guess it's a good time to jump into that. Is it? So probably around year seven, um, things were going well. We, I, I, we had a, a baby. He was six months old at the time. And I, I was on jury duty for the week. And so we, but we had also, my wife was pregnant with a second child. So we went to the, we dropped the, my son off with the babysitter and we went to the, they'll be to see the ultrasound. And when we returned home, I, I have uh, a different recollection of how things happen and then it's the writing to help me sort things out. But I got a phone call from the fire station. Um, and he said, are you in trouble? A police officer just called here. And, uh, I said, no, but then I realized I was on jury, jury duty and forgotten to call in that morning. And so I was like, oh no, I told my wife, I said, I think I missed jury duty. And. So I called the number that he gave me back and he said, she said, are you the, the parent of Braden? And I said, yeah. And I'm, I might get a little emotional on this part. No, but you're, you're fine. Take your time. I said, yeah. She said, I need you to go to the hospital right now. And I said, is everything okay? And she said, I can't talk about it. I just need you to go to the hospital right now. And so, you know, I told, I told my wife, I said, we got to go to the hospital. Something's wrong with Braden. And we knew right off the bat cops don't cops don't do that like it's you know we work in this field we we know that if they can tell you they tell you and but we started like the bargaining well it's, it's probably just a broken arm well you know when we get them we'll get there when we did we'll sort it out when we get there it's going to be fine and then we got to the hospital and the doors flew open and they they no, there was no 
everybody knew us. We're in that hospital all the time. My wife worked with a lot of the people. Um, doors flew open. They grabbed us. They took us right back to the room. And he was, he was laying there with a tube sticking out of his mouth. And they said, she, he, the nurse manager said, he's gone. And I said, what do you mean he's gone? He's sitting right there in front of me. They had already, they had already worked him for two hours prior to our arrival, but we didn't know about it because it was so, I'd missed a couple of calls from the police officer, um, because it was an unknown number and, um, they, I had to go through the steps of grief really fast. Um, you know, I, I went from denial to bargaining to acceptance within probably 30 seconds because I knew that I had to be there for my wife who was an absolute wreck at that point. She was just rocking it back and forth. And so, um, I started getting nauseated just, I, I couldn't be in the room anymore. And I asked her to hold him. And when I, when she handed him to me, you get used to your six month old being able to hold his head up and yeah. she, held, she handed him to me, his head flopped back and that was the sign that I knew. I was like, he's, he's dead. And so I, I sat him on the bed and I walked, grabbed her and I walked out of the room. And, uh, about that time they asked me if I needed to call anybody. I said, yeah, I need to call everybody, but I don't, I don't have my phone. It was in the car. We'd left it whenever we were running into the hospital. And so I went out and when I got back, the, the hospital chaplain from up, came up to me and said, have you thought about how you want to handle the, the funeral, the funeral, do you want a cremation or do you want a burial? And I said, why would I have thought about that? Like, why, why does this have decision have to be made right now? And so, uh, you know, he, he was persistent and. I, I said, just buried. I, I couldn't handle the thought of cremation, not at that moment. And so we, we sat in the quiet room for forever. The hot doctor poked her head in. So there's any questions I can answer you in just such a matter of fact, not emotional way, no support, no support there at all. And I, at the, I didn't have any, I just wanted to get out. And so that's what we did. Um, the captain that I was talking about earlier, he, he rented a hotel room for us at that, that night. Um, so we wouldn't have to go home and the fire department just really rallied around us and carried us through that. Um, so I took probably, I took two weeks off. I think it was either two weeks or a month. Um, it was a month. And so I sat, you know, we, it got to the point where people stopped coming. Every, everybody was around for a while, but it just started getting to the point where people were starting, stopping, coming over the move. The world was moving on, but once the world moves on, you really don't. Right. And I had to get out. I, so I decided I was going back to work, even though I wasn't fully ready. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. 
While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. And on that first night back to work, we were dispatched to a vehicle accident and the driver was intoxicated. She was really belligerent. She was, um, more than I could handle at the time. And I don't remember what I said to her. I, I was very curt, and she said, you should be nicer to drunk people or not drunk. You should be nicer to people that have been in accidents. And I, I lost it. So well, you should be nicer to people. That have been, and I, I was going in to choke her out because I was so done with this woman and emotionally I was not prepared to handle that kind of stress in the moment. And my partner grabbed me. She pushed me out the back of the ambulance, said, get out, get out. And the, the crew took me back and they sent me home. Uh, my captain referred me to EAP and I was out for another month after that. Uh, and, and that was the only time that I talked to a therapist through all of this. Um, and you know, I think that's when I started to, that it was through that, that interaction that I started to write. He said, why don't you start keeping a journal of these things? And I, so that's what I did. I started writing. That was in 2015, no, 2014. Um, he said, why don't, why don't you start keeping a journal? And I started keeping a journal at that point. It really didn't, that was the foundation that turned into a book. All of these different things that I started, that I encountered. Um, but I brought up how I, re I have a different recollection of memory. And one of my, I have PTSD from that event. Um, one of the things, one of my triggers was calls from unknown numbers. And every time you, I would just have that every time I'd see a call come in from an unknown number at my heart would like, how they would go to one thirty. It was, I would just get that panic just set over me. Like which, which one of my kids. And it wasn't until I wrote the book that I realized that it did not make logical sense. I was like, how I, I don't answer unknown phone calls. I don't understand why. All of that time, I thought that I had answered a phone call from the police officer, and that was not the case. That was how I remember. Because when you when when you're dealing with stress, you you deal with what's important. One was that I talked to somebody on the phone, and the other was that he was dead in the hospital. All of the details in between that I didn't remember until I started writing them out and realized that it didn't make logical sense, and that I had gotten me. Um, a phone call from the fire station. So if anything, it should be work calling that caused the PTSD. But after making that connection through writing, I haven't really had that trigger anymore. And, uh, I think sometimes our brains just need to sort out, need to, need to sort out what actually happened versus what a catalog is happening. It's interesting uh, you use the word catalog because that's exactly what came to mind was when I talk to people about the EMDR that they do, it's that re-catalog, re reorganizing the thoughts in the brain. And that's exactly what it is. It's, yeah. it's, they put that memory away improperly and, or in yeah. the wrong spot or disjointed. And so through the EMDR and through the, it reorganizes that thought process. And so for, for you, that writing was your, your, your EMDR basically. 
Yes. And yeah. so it's, you, you came to the realization that, oh, wait a second. No, this is what actually happened. And so, uh, and I'm not going to say ridiculous because it's not ridiculous. It's a reaction that you, your body and your mind have had to a, to a traumatic experience. And it makes total sense to have that reaction. But you do come to that realization for yourself that it's not, it's not the reality of the situation. Yeah. It's in, and I'll go back. I'm a reference. Um, one of my guests and, and she's a friend of mine now, her name is Stephanie. She does the five after midnight podcast. She talks about an experience for her where she thought she called her parents to tell them how bad things were with, with, with an ex-boyfriend of hers. And they, she comes to find out after that phone call that they were having dinner with this gentleman, or I won't say gentleman with this ex of hers. And she couldn't understand why they would go out and have dinner with them, with him, if she had just told him what was going on and she lost like four or six years of, of interaction with her parents because of that only to find out later on that when she made that call, she couldn't talk. She really? never, she never spoke to her parents. She, she, she mentioned the call to them and they go, yeah, you called, but you were quiet. You didn't say anything. You just sat there. And so in her mind, she had a conversation, but it never came out to the phone call. And so it's, it's a very similar thing where you just, your, your mind just does what it has to do to protect you. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting how the, the compartmentalization that occurs whenever, um, there's a problem that you don't want to deal with. It's um, not only don't, but whatever, it's just too overwhelming to deal with. Right. Right. Too overwhelming is a better, better way to put that. So I think that one of the, the good that comes out of this for you is that you find this, this, you find how much your fire department, your crew is a family. Yeah. Because of yeah. what they, they really do. They step up and they take care of you guys for quite a while. Correct. They did. And it wasn't just my fire department. It was all the agencies around, uh, around us. You know, they, Ryan, Ryan really solidified his position as my best friend for life during through all of this, uh, through all of this, he. He was there for five straight days. He orchestrated all of the funeral arrangements, uh, with the help of my mother-in-law's friend, Margie, um, orchestrated all of that. He orchestrated fire department stuff they, they covered my ships. They covered his ships so that he could be there for us. Uh, they started meal trains to make sure that we were eating <laughs> to the point where we had two full refrigerators and had to say, listen, guys, I appreciate the help, but it, right. it's time to, off. we're, we're throwing away a lot of food here. Um, they, the, the surrounding agencies, it, they all covered Portsmouth fire department the day of the funeral so that the entire fire department could, could attend. We, uh, the, the local air ambulance, it did a flyover of the funeral. Suffolk fire department lined the streets with, um, their apparatus with, and let, uh, loan their ladder trucks so that they could have the, the ladder arch. Um, they, my captain footed the bill essentially for the entire funeral. Um, you know, we, we could not have made it through that period without that community surrounding us and just lifting us up. So how does your time at Portsmouth come to an end then? When do you guys decide that, that it was enough? Cause I know there's some, some things you discuss, like, um, it's, it's only natural that when, when you lose somebody 
your son or a father or whatever, um, you know, at, at the beginning, it's so intensive and, and you're going by this, you're going by the gravesite or you're, you're visiting and you're, you're touching base and, and, and that starts to, the, the gaps start to widen. Am I correct in, in saying that? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, I didn't know what I was dealing with at the time. It was grief. It was stress. It was exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I did know was that I was not sleeping well at night. I was starting to experience the symptoms of irritability, of burnout, of not wanting to go to work, of all of those things that culminate over time. I was starting to see those symptoms. And all I knew was that I needed, I needed a lower run load and I needed the ability to potentially sleep at night. And so I started, uh, looking for rural jobs and, you know, it just so happened that a Portsmouth chief had just left and was now the fire chief over in Isle of Wight County. And so I messaged him. He said, yeah, apply. We'll, we'll hire you. And so I did my interview. Um, and it, it was, that's really what made it, made me realize that it was time to leave. Now leaving, that was a difficult decision in and of itself because like I just talked about, that was my, those were my people. That was my community. That was my family. And, you know, I, I took a grief class. There's a lot of different types of grief beyond just the loss of someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you grieve whenever you get transferred shifts, you grieve when you change jobs, you, there, there's a lot of different types of grief. And so I was piling on a new type of grief, but I was doing it with the hope of maybe sleeping at night so that I wasn't feeling so tired and so irritable and angry and all of these things that, um, what I now know are burnout and PTSD. Right. And so essentially what I did was run and run rather than dealing with dealing with it. One of the, one of the last things, and correct me if I'm, if I'm recalling it wrong. Uh, one of the last things you did in Portsmouth was, is you, I called it a win in my notes. I said the win of, of a save. Yeah. Um, how did that, did that help kind of close that chapter for you? And in, in, are you, in, are you referring to the pediatric call? Yeah. Yeah. That was actually an Isle of Wight. So, oh, was, okay. I'm, I'm sorry. My mistake. Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, I, I, I have faith in God. I didn't at the time, uh, but through all of this, it's, um, some things were revealed to me, which I don't, I don't know if this is the right form to discuss it, but it's in the book. Some things were revealed to me. Um, and I, I didn't have, I had five pediatric codes in my first year, um, in EMS. I did not have a pediatric code from 2014 to 2018. So I, I truly believe that I was being protected by a higher power from dealing with that, but it still left that thing in the back of my mind. Like, am I still going to be able to deal with this when it finally happens? Right. And it, it was always there. It was always like. I don't know if I can, I don't, maybe I should, maybe I do need to leave the field. Maybe it's, it's not something that I think I can do. Um, and, and so on my final week at Isle of Wight, I was dispatched to a doctor's office for a, a breathing difficulty. And when I walked in, it was a pediatric 
um, asthma attack and I watched him take his final breath. And so we ran him out and it was one of those high stress scenarios that all pediatric codes are, but he, we were going to go to the children's hospital and I decided I didn't, I didn't have time for that. I needed to get to a hospital cause I needed an airway and he was seizing and I couldn't, I couldn't get the airway that I needed. So we stopped at uh, a standalone ER. I had them intubate him and then we continued on. Um, and by the end of that, it was just such a sense of relief that I was able to perform in that moment. He ended up doing well. He was discharged from the hospital two days later. Um, after being weaned off the inner, the ventilator and mm -hmm. it, it was just such a success story. And, and I don't know. I mean, I think if that had gone a different way, that might've been it for me. That was my, that was going to be a question. I mean, what, what do you think? And, and it's hard to, what if, especially that situation and yeah, and it's almost not even worth it. I'd imagine, but yeah, it could have gone a completely different way for you. Yeah. And, and just, just having that win was confirmation. I'm not done. I've still got, I've still got something to give here. Um, and I can still perform under pressure. And after that call, I went outside and it was a complete emotional release. It was, you know, I was on the ground in a fetal position crying after that, but I think that's okay. I mean, it's, it, it's as long as you can keep doing the job while, while it matters. After the call, that's when you can let it go. Oh yeah, definitely. And, that's what, yeah. And, and, and people need to learn that it's okay to let that go. Yeah. So that was your, that was basically your last shift in Virginia. Yeah. One of the, like one of my last couple, at least. And you guys make the decision. How, how was that decision? How was it coming to the decision to leave Virginia and, and for all intents and purposes to, to, to leave your son? That was tough. Now we haven't, I haven't left my son right. he's, he's right where we left him, but, um, we do stop by, we, my, my in-laws still live in Virginia. So we do stop by and see him deliver flowers. I've still got people in the area that will stop by on his birthday, Nice, drop flowers there and send us pictures. And, um, but the difficulty was, yes, I, I'm, I'm delivering patients to the same hospital that yeah. he was coded in. I'm walking by that room and I'm seeing the ghosts of myself in that room. Um, and him laying there in that little, in that hospital bed, I'm driving by the cemetery. It, we needed to change the landscape. I needed to change where, um, you know, I, the four walls, the home, there were reminders of him everywhere. I'm driving on the road. There's a reminder of him. There's every time I go to work, there's a reminder of him. And so we, after he died, we were told don't make rash decisions, but it'd been three years at that point. Um, and we were starting to think, okay, well, this is not a rash decision anymore. This is what we need to heal. And so we put Virginia in the rearview mirror and went to Indiana. My wife started a new job as a professor at Indiana University. And um, I started a new job with some podunk ambulance company that didn't 
didn't pay the bills and didn't give you time off and didn't provide insurance. You know, there was just no, it was a dead end job. And so I started looking in the area once I was there and ended up getting hired with the Pike Township Fire Department as a paramedic, a civilian paramedic with them. What year was that? 20, 2018. All right. And then that leads you into, to one of, one of the biggest changes for, for us as, as providers into the COVID era. Yeah. Yeah. COVID was, a it, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I did not deal well with the masking. I, I hated it. It was something to me that I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't function as a person. <laughs> it was, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't, um, smell. I couldn't People couldn't see your faces. I didn't have facial expressions. I, w- I was just done with the masking. But on top of all of that, they added all of the, the restrictions. You couldn't go out to eat. You couldn't do anything in your off time to kind of blow off the steam from work. So I'm just back and forth between two walls, the monotony of that. And, um, and I, I don't remember how it was, we were probably a year in, but I was just done with it and getting to the point where I, I couldn't, couldn't fathom the idea of going to work every day. And it was, it was miserable during that time. And then I would get on the ambulance and have to wear a mask essentially for 24 straight hours. And I, uh, I finally went to my leadership and I was like, I, I can't keep doing this. Like you're making policies for firefighters who were never on the ambulance because it was a 100% civilian workforce. But I could not, I, I couldn't, I couldn't ever get away from it. So it was just nonstop during that time. I don't, I don't know how much of it. Yeah. I, and, you know, politics aside, because there's a bunch of politics in COVID and, and, and whether you and I are on the same side, different side, mixed sides, I don't care. And I, and I COVID was what COVID was. And I think we're going to learn lessons from that whole experiment for a long time. Uh, right. I think we're still experiencing the, the, the backlash from what COVID was. Uh, it obviously wasn't what we thought it was. And some, in some cases, it was more than what we thought it was. So I guess my, my question about the COVID era was going to be, how does that, you, you, you go into it quite a bit in a book about how, how our approaches and our interactions start to change with the citizenry that we serve. Yeah. So we were wearing this P100 masks that it, it was like Charlie Brown's teacher. You were muffled. Yeah. I can't hear because it's directing the sound around my ears. They can't hear what I'm saying because it's garbled. And so we just got to a point where we just weren't talking. Like it was like, pull it down to say, what's your name? And then, um, I would start typing my report and there was no assessment going on. There was no, uh, human interaction. It got to a point where, you know, they were sending people home without having talked to their loved ones for months, uh, in some cases, and no explanation as to think something had changed for them. And in one case, I had a guy who had had a stroke and he was no longer verbal. His wife didn't even know it. And it was four months later. And so when they sent him home and he could no longer do anything for himself and he did, she didn't know he was nonverbal because he's been in a nursing home for four months and he can't talk to her on the phone because he's nonverbal and she can't get a hold of anybody there because they're short staffed and, um, 
he got discharged essentially with instructions to feed him through a feeding tube and, you know, do that. But she's never done any of this. She doesn't know how to do any of it. And so she calls nine one. was like, I don't know how to take care of him. Um, and I think that was the roughest thing for me because now I know she's like, she's, she's worried that she's going to send him out and he's going to be gone for another four months and she's going to have no idea what's going on because families still aren't allowed in the hospital. And, but she also knows I can't take care of him. I, I don't have the ability to do that. So she's just at her wits end and she's looking to us for support. And I can't give her, I can't even give her a facial expression yeah. um, of support. And so that really started to grind on me and, and got me to the point where it's like, I, I can't do this anymore. I've got to leave this field. Um, and so I started taking steps to do that. I, I went, started going to school. I got my bachelor's in business administration, fully intent on the idea that I'm going to walk away from this. I, 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 I just can't stomach the idea of EMS anymore. Uh, when you, because again, I'm sorry, it was not, I, I was not making a difference anymore. Yeah, that that is such a huge theme with people who who start to experience that that burned out feeling is is am I making a difference, mm-hmm. or can I make a bigger difference elsewhere? Right, because I think at the heart of what we all have in common is we want to help. Right, nobody gets into the fire department or or as a paramedic to to uh, to get rich and to for for personal gain. Really, I mean. You got to work your ass off if you want to get rich from from the fire department. There's a lot of overtime to to do if you want to get rich. I think we all get into it because we have a we have a, a very similar feeling that we echo, and that's that's you want to do some good in the world, right? When did you start seeing the public react differently to you as 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 a fire a firefighter? And it were because you know we we had such goodwill for such a long time. When do you start seeing that difference start? Oh, um, I think it was a gradual transition, but it was during that summer of 2020 when there was such tension in the world between COVID and racial injustice and all of the other things that were going on during that time. Um, you know, we, we start seeing rioting, we start seeing ill will towards cops. And I think that translated onto authority in general and whether we like it or not, fire department and EMS are authoritative figures because we have to be. Um, you know, you hear the the all cop, cops are bad slogan, and it's, I, most people say it don't believe that all cops are bad. They say it because they work for a system that they believe is bad. But in the same case, same instance, a lot of times so do we. And, and so that translates from cops on the fire and EMS. And so we would get into these situations. There's always been some level of hostility, but it was getting to the point where it was like every third call I went on, somebody's yelling at me or cussing at me or throwing things at me, or, you know, you, you hear about people shooting at ambulances or fire trucks as they drive down the road. And I, I, I think it was really just because the world was so cranked up during that time with no, no outlet other than at each other or through the media. And so how do you, how does that experience change your approach to the job? I'm, I'm more on edge, or at least I was when I lived in Indy, I was more on edge. I was worried that I was going to pull up to a stoplight and someone was going to, um, 
just, I had a couple instances where people had swore stopped at stoplights and somebody just walked up and shot them in the head. Um, I had a respiratory therapist that came home from a day of work and somebody opened up on her with an AK-47. Um, these aren't people, you know, historically we've always said, all right, he got shot, but he was in a gang. He probably had it coming. Um, or that he was dealing drugs. He probably had that coming, but it, these are people that were just going to work or coming home from work or taking their kids to the grocery store. And that translates to us. I mean, I, I was always worried that somebody was going to call 911 and ambush us, or I would be sitting at a stoplight and somebody would walk up and shoot me. And it was worse at night. And I, I re recently had an instance where I was driving. I don't work nights anymore, but I recently had an instance where I was driving through a city and I noticed my heart rate started rising and it was about nine o'clock at night. And I was like, what was going on? And I realized it's because I was equating that moment to that time that I spent on 24 hour shifts at night, worried about that stuff. Mm. And it's still there from a, a year later after, after leaving nights. I know that you, you talk about, um, there's some simple changes that you guys approach because you, you, there's an appearance to you that, that kind of looks like the local police, correct? Like their shirts, your uniforms, cause you're, you're trying to differentiate yourselves a little bit from, from, and, and there's this, there's a, maybe a, not a guilt by association, but, but, a, an association of appearance from between firefighters and police. And, and so you're, you, the, the, but your admin is, is not favorable to, to making any change. Yeah, this has been a, a discussion for as long as I've been in this field of what shirt we wear. And it seems like every time you get a new chief, you get a new shirt. Um, but you hear about, there, there was some recommendation that we switch to red shirts that say fire on them or blue shirts that say EMS or, but what we get is these black hard collars that look just like what cops wear with a badge on it. looks just like a cop's badge. The only difference is I don't have a gun, but kids don't notice that. People right. don't notice you don't have a gun on. They just see the badge and the black shirt. And um, yeah, I think there's always that risk that you're going to be assumed to be a cop and someone's going to shoot at you. So how long do you spend in Indiana? Uh, I was in Indiana for three years. And is that where the uh, part in the book about put a muzzle on it comes from? No, that was, um, that was more Portsmouth. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I assume you're going to ask you about the, the, the reason I got suspended. I, <laughs> well, so if I, you want to talk about it, if you don't, we don't have to. It's just, it's just a part that I had made a note on. Yeah. It, so I had made a video before I even got into the fire department about because I was volunteering and every time you walk into a building, people are like, what am I buying you for? Bu buying you for dinner tonight. And <laughs> they don't, the public doesn't realize that they don't buy our food. We buy our own food. Um, but I had made a video as a parody of that. It was back when YouTube was like first starting to, I, I put it on there. I don't know how it equated it, it linked, but I had had a picture of me in a fire department uniform and there was a complaint, a citizen complaint about me and they investigated me for a year. And this is what they found. They found a video that they, that was disagreeable. It was vulgar, admittedly. Um, and they found me in my fire department uniform as the, um, 
profile picture on YouTube. Now you couldn't tell anything. We couldn't tell where I worked from that because it's, it's tiny. It's the less than a quarter inch. And so what they did was they went to my chief and they said, I want him terminated for that. Um, all of that was done in the dark. Nobody ever told me I was being investigated. There was never, there was nothing. I mean, essentially I wouldn't, I wouldn't suspend my employees for what I was suspended for, um, let alone terminated. And my chief to save my job, um, said, okay, I will suspend him for 10 days, but I'm not going to terminate him for this. And so they did, they suspended me for 10 days and I went and worked my part-time job and ended up making more money in the end, but. And, and got more sleep. Right. <laughs> but yes, exactly. But I also lost my position, um, that I just gotten on the SWAT team mm -hmm. based on a rumor because they didn't know what, why it was a personnel issue. They didn't know why I was disciplined. They just knew I was disciplined. Right. Um, I lost my position on the SWAT team. I kind of lost my reputation until people found out what I was disciplined for. And they were like, are you serious? That was why. And, um, you know, so it, I, I had to fight back from that. And so it, they really lost a lot of goodwill with me by chasing something that, uh, I didn't feel was justified. And there were more egregious offenses that I had re essentially gone unpunished. Um, and I think that's so, why I, I think that's why I bring it up is because we, we talk about the cumulative and the little stuff adding on and adding on and adding on. And here you are in this situation where your, your administration is, is not helping. They're adding more on to you. And so this becomes that part of you that says, uh, I don't really give a shit right now. And, and it, and that extrapolates out to everything that you do. I mean, it, it it's. It's a great example, again, of, of leadership. However, in the opposite direction of what your captain did in the situation where he volunteered to, volunteered to take the hit for you guys, the, now this, this admin is showing you how not to lead. Right. And it's such right. a backlash for you personally. And, and personally, I think that chief was leading from a good place. I, he really had nothing to do with it. He has, he has bosses too. Oh yeah. Uh, he, he did what he thought was best to protect me. But at the same time, when you're kind of, you know, when you're an employee, it feels like it's coming down on you. Like he's coming down on you. Mm -hmm. Now from a leadership position, I understand fully what he's doing, what he did. Um, but I didn't recognize it at the time. And so it, it cost, it cost goodwill with me. I was, it, it made me want to walk away. But also it creates that resentment towards leadership, towards the department. It, it, and it, it is, it, it's something it's, it's tough to kind of recover from. Right. I want to, um, we're not ending yet because I do have my questions. I'm going to ask you, but I wanted to, to read a passage from the book. If, if you'll indulge me for a second and, and I'll read it and, and kind of talk to you about it. So hopefully that I don't screw this up too badly for you. Um, if you see, you should see the book, it's, it's, dog-eared and all kinds of marked up. So <laughs> it was, it was picking and choosing what, what, what we were going to talk about tonight. Um, and it's, it's in shoot. I'm trying to remember what chapter I had it in. Bear with me. Chapter 14, the shell cracks. Yeah. Um, and it, it it's a, 
piece of it, and I'm not sure how far into it I'll read, but I want, I'll just read a little bit and we can talk about it. You start with, um, I'm weathered by these experiences, these calls, these horrific memories, the death and broken bodies, the sleep deprivation, the nonsense, the abuse from patients, the administrative indifference, the years without proper vacations, the missed kids' baseball games and holidays, practicing medicine that is more influenced by the legal system and bureaucracy than the scene, or by the science. And being a cog in a broken system, everyone knows is broken and nobody has any real solutions for. Some of these have, have eroded me over time, like sand blown in the wind and water over rocks. Some hit like a baseball bat and others like a dump truck. Each one takes a little bit more of me, or a little more of me, and in time I have just gotten tired. The nonsense, the run of the mill, the day-to-day all cause burnout. But this is the type of burnout we can come back from. One of the good calls show up, or excuse me, one of the good calls shows up and reinvigorates us for a time. We take a day off and get a little extra sleep. We do those wellness suggestions from HR to work out, eat right, get more sleep, get a massage, etc. And that's good enough to get by for a little while longer. But then here comes the baseball bats and the dump trucks. Somehow those, excuse me, somehow those HR suggestions don't seem to meet the burden for those moments. It takes more sleep, more of the good calls. We can actually make a difference and more time away to get through these. As for dump trucks, sometimes you just can't leap the fence again. So, Obviously that dump truck, I'm going to, the next paragraph, you say that dump truck was your son, but, right. but all of that, that, that speaks volumes to what all of us are going through right now. It's the, like you said, it's that cumulative thought. It's everything that it's, it's, it's come at you. It comes at you from every angle. Um, you do talk about, you say you've considered suicide a couple of times in, in your career and in your life. What were those times and how did you deal with it? So the first was after the death of my son. Um, I was probably uh, a month, month, month and a half in. It was right after my break at work where they sent me home. And I actually went through the whole rehearsal. I, I went upstairs. I got the shotgun out. I went downstairs. I sat. I imagined how it would happen. And then I remembered a lot of the calls that I've been on where people surround themselves in plastic so they don't make a mess. And I imagine my daughter and my wife coming in and finding me there and I put the shotgun away and I never really thought about it again. The second time was not a singular event. It was a, it was almost like a voice in my head. Maybe you'd be better off dead. And, um, it was at first noticeable. And then once it became more constant, it wasn't noticeable anymore. And it wasn't even that I was considering it. It was just, I'm just done with this. I I can't keep going on. I was exhausted. And it got to the point where I actually voiced this to my wife, not even realizing what was going on. And she said, are you saying you're suicidal? And I went, holy shit, I am. I am saying I'm suicidal. And so... At that point, that's when I went to the doctor and I said, listen, I gotta, I gotta do something. And they put me on an SSRI and it got, it got better. It put me in a better state of mind, but it was the, that was the bridge that got me to where I am now. And, and that bridge is, I I had to find new purpose. My purpose isn't serving the citizens on the street anymore. From a paramedic perspective, I still do my job. They are not my purpose. It's the people that work for me that I serve that are my purpose now. And 
you know, that starts with this discussion. I've got an employee right now who says, it sounds really bad that you went through this, but I just can't see myself ever getting there. When mm. I was 25, I couldn't see myself getting there either. It's a cumulative thing over time. And so I want to have this discussion early. So whenever they do start to experience the symptoms that I talked about, they, they recognize, and I want to be more proactive about it. I, I, everything, every resource out there right now is reactive. Mm -hmm. It's fire on the wall. It says feeling suicidal or feel right. like nobody cares or that that's reactive. And that is not coming from a perspective of somebody who's feeling that way. Because whenever I was in that, that place, A, I didn't recognize that I was in that place. And B, I was not in the headspace to call somebody, a stranger, and talk to them about the way I was feeling. That comes from, it should come from leadership, seeing these signs and saying, hey, I see something's off. Why don't we come, why don't we come in my office and talk about it for a second? What can I do to make this day easier for you? I see that you're, you're more quiet today, more withdrawn. Um, I had an instance where an employee quit overnight. And my first thought was, oh no, he's tying up his loose ends. Mm. Um, and it just was, he, he did so, and it was not a, it was not characteristic of him. And so that was me calling and saying, Hey, what's up? What's going on? Um, and he had just, he had good reasons, but you know, we, we've, as a leadership team, we've got to be more proactive in recognizing when stuff like that happens and when people are tying up their loose ends and when they're irritable and when they're, they stop coming to work, uh, when a once reliable employee is no longer reliable. Right. When you start to smell alcohol on their breath, when, you know, it's, it's those moments whenever they're not dealing with it appropriately, you know, Pike Township called us tactical athletes and we need to. They did it from a physical perspective, but we are like athletes. We don't want to come out of the game and we don't recognize when it's best for us to come out of the game. And so sometimes the coach has to step up and say, listen, it's best for the team if you come, best for the team and best for you if you come out of the game now. And that's what I view my job as now. Um, you know, it's a couple of things there. A, not many people in a leadership position have the wherewithal to go. Yeah. That guy needs a break. Yeah. You just, you just, you can't recognize it in yourself. Sometimes you can't even recognize it in others, let, let alone yourself. And B the system doesn't know what to do once you give that break. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked to people who've been the center of excellence and the, you know, the IFF center of excellence and, and, or any other inpatient facility. And the, 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 the biggest disconnect that we have is, is the reintegration into a department after you've gone out to take care of yourself. Let's use, use that as the term. It, a lot of departments just go, Oh, what the fuck do we do with this guy now? You know, I, they don't know. They haven't learned how to reintegrate somebody into their department and you know, uh, some, some want to protect. And so they, they go, they, they, they shove, not shove them, they put them away in, in logistics for a while while they try to figure out what to do with them. Uh, a, a county doctor who has really no experience and no place determining the, the mental health of an individual 
refuses to let them back on full duty because he thinks he knows best. Well, you don't just, you know, have me do my stretches and my prove to you my fingers work or whatever it is because you, you're, you're not qualified to judge my mental health. Um, and so I think that's the disconnect. I, I don't know if that's some of what you're finding as well is just those two things, recognizing and then bringing them back into the fold. Right. Yeah. And, and even from a long-term perspective, I, I, I listened to one of your podcasts where you talked about the retirement system. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we are using a retirement system that was invented in like 1875 <laughs> or something like that. Right. And it's based on years of service for people who sit at desks. Um, that's not the way that this job no, works. Not at all. And so historically we haven't had the ability to do this, but I'm actually writing an article right now that I don't know if it will ever be published, but I'm calling it the EMS mental health agenda of the future. And one of the things that I discussed is the points-based retirement system. Uh, and I model, I've got a model that I've put into it, but I'm modeling it after the demobilization of American troops following World War II. Mm. And it takes combat stress into effect. Now, we couldn't do this previously, but now we have an electronic health record that uh, has my name on every call that I've ever been on. Yeah. And it would hard to create a registry for you get one point for this type of call or 1.1 for this type of call. Interesting. And time they add up and we say, I don't know, let's say 20,000 points you're out. Um, whether that looks like 16 or 17 year, years or seven years, I, I don't know what that looks like, but it is measurable to say, okay, people are committing suicide after 7,000 points or what do we need to do to move that forward? Yeah, and, and that's based on a call call point of view rather than oh this this gentleman went for some help now we got to keep an eye on because then because then it it kind of demonizes asking for help right interesting right yeah it, it, that's definitely a, a way I hadn't thought of I hadn't even thought about that you know that that point system yeah it but then the the issue that you run into is you've got people that have that have tied their entire identity up. And I'm a firefighter or I'm a paramedic. <laughs> what do you do with those people following? Well, now we've got mental support specialists yeah. that we could employ to help others who are now dealing with the same things. Um, and they get to keep their identity and they get to help others and they get to repurpose. Yeah. It's funny because I, that's one of the big things that we discussed on the show. And, and actually it's the, the, it's the uh, subject of a post I made on Instagram this morning is, Hey, we're humans who happened to do a job as a firefighter, as a medic, as a nurse, as a doctor, we, we, we do this job. We aren't a firefighter. That's not who we are. That's what we do. There's a huge difference between those two. There's a, there's a, there's a very distinct line between the two. And in order to be healthy and happy after the job, you have to identify as a human first who works as a firefighter. Right. So yeah, that's, that's a huge point that I, I keep trying to make to people. Yeah. Is there any parting thoughts about the book, about your career, about life as it is today? Cause I, you want to mention what, what you're doing today? Um, well, right now I'm a, I'm a captain for Bennington rescue squad in Vermont. Um, I I've got a vision of a proactive approach to mental health. And that starts with your podcast, um, and, and people like you talking about it, but I want to see action 
taken from the talking, because if we just talk about it and talk about our stress and our trauma, it doesn't mean that we're, it means we're not dealing with it. If we're still dealing with the stress of the trauma. So, yeah. um, it's always going to be there, but I want to see us get to a point where, um, we are managing it from day one where the rookie has his appointment on with a therapist the day that he's hired and then he had try they track him throughout 20 years of service or however long he ends up serving um where i i don't have people looking at me saying i don't think i'm ever going to get there and then having to deal with it when they finally do right um and i i just i'm trying to create a platform right now um like uh, we've talked about it, but it's not just the calls. It's the, the money management, the, mm -hmm. um, it, th there's a lot that goes into burnout, but it's, it's just several things that are not always the calls that, uh, we're it, nutrition, sleep. Yeah. Burnout. <laughs> well, like, like you said, the sense that you're not doing good. Right. When, when that's the whole purpose of why you got into the job. Right. Yeah, we get into go into a, a burning building because for some reason the idiots like us find that enjoyable, but it's right. but we're trying to affect good at the same time. All right. All right. You ready for the last two questions? Sure. All right. You know why I call the show what I call the show, and most of the listeners know it as well. Um, and one of the reasons, one of the things that comes from that is I just I like to ask everybody about that everyday carry something you carry with you that you feel naked when you walk out of the house and you don't have it on you. Uh, my laptop, um, uh, it's what I do all my writing on. Um, and whether I use it or not, it's always with me. I know I'm not going to use it at work, but it's always, it's always right there by my side just in case I do. So what, uh, what are you working on now? Um, I am currently building my website out, uh, burnoutmedic.com. Okay. Um, it's, I'm trying to decide which direction I want to go with it, whether I want not, I want to make, make it the platform or. If I want it to be my author's page or whatever that looks like. But right now it's, um, the idea is to link resources, mm -hmm. different resources. I don't, I, the suicide hotline is not going to be on that, that website. Um, but, uh, I've, I've linked your podcast to it. I've linked. Oh, honor. Thank you. I've linked, uh, there's a Facebook page called project hope or project. Yeah. yeah project. Yep. Is it um, the EMS project hope or. Is, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know it. I've found a lot of benefit from that in discussing just the other night, there was a guy that had messaged in, um, one of the group chats and said, I'm, I'm not doing well. And that later he, he admitted that he said, I'd plan essentially said I planned to take my life that night. Hmm. Uh, it was through that group that he decided that he was going to go to the hospital and Good. he's alive so um it's it's things like that uh vermont paws and boots she is a nonprofit that trains service dogs to for first responders without charge to them and it, they are trained to deal with ptsd and anxiety and i i did a class with her and i watched um <laughs> i watched this woman become extremely anxious one of the worst anxiety attacks i ever saw and this dog got on her just put pressure on her 
and she calmed right down. And, and so I, I, I love that. Um, but yeah, blogging, doing that, I'm, I'm writing that, that article that I talked about and try to get that out there. There's, um, there's just a, it's a lot, it's a, it's a little bit overwhelming. Right yeah. Now, you're, but, you're staying busy. That's for damn sure. Yeah. All right. Give me a book book or two that you want to suggest. I know you have your book. It's called burnt out. Um, and if I'm stealing your thunder by mentioning it, that's, I mean, we talked about it the whole time. So, uh, is there another book that you want to suggest to the audience? Yeah. Um, I actually just read it and it was assigned by my leadership. It's called the, the men, the mission and me. Okay. Uh, by Peter Blaber. He's, a. I think he was army ranger. Um, but it, it, the, the whole point of the book is to discuss that the order of precedence should be those three men, the, uh, the mission, the men and me, um, and you should be the last consideration for decision-making for your men to accomplish the mission. Um, and if it, if it's not good for the mission, then it's not good for the men or you, and if it's not good for the men, it's not good for the mission, you know, it, you have to have a synchrony of those three mm -hmm. items or or if you place yourself above it then it's not good for your men or your mission or the trust of the men right and it's not gonna be good for you in the end so and who was the author Pete Blaber Pete Blaber okay I will uh I will link that one of the things I'm doing a very poor job of is keeping up with my my website and I need to spend about it two days taking care of a, of, a, of a bunch of shows that I need to get the show links into and that is on me and my ADD and, and somebody will tell you that it's completely undiagnosed but I'll tell you it's a very real thing um, I, Chad I, I appreciate this conversation I appreciate you having I've, me uh, on I, I, I appreciate you sending the book I, I enjoyed the book it was it was uh, devastating at points obviously but it was what you've done with it and what how you've turned it around and how you how you come out that other end from, from losing your son is, is is amazing, and uh, I, uh, I applaud you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm going to sign off here, and I'll, I'll keep you on for a minute, and we'll talk about it, and we'll just wrap up real quick off the air. You good with that? Sure. All right. Well, I appreciate it, and we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves. And remember to check in on each other.